Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The last two weeks of our readings from the book of Romans focused on our Christian life in society, but mostly how we engage with our neighbors and the people that are around us. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. But what about our attitude towards those who are placed in authority over us? Towards our mayors and city councils and national assembly and premier and prime minister and governments. That's what Paul addresses next. And his answer seems pretty straightforward. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So government's authority comes from God. We should be subject to it because we worship God. Amen. Let us go in peace. But wait. Wait, Pastor. What about when governments allow behaviors that are contrary to God's word? What about when governments make it difficult and life difficult for churches and for Christians? What about when the government labels the very words of God, scripture, to be hate speech and tell us not to say these words anymore? What about when government leaders even seem to forbid Christian worship? Doesn't Peter say in Acts chapter 5, when he was confronting his governing authorities, that we must obey God rather than man? Don't we always stand against the authorities each and every time that we say that Jesus is Lord rather than Caesar? This had never really been a major issue in our synod. We'd always been well known as the church body that understood Romans 13 and that obeyed the government until suddenly the government started doing stuff that cramped our style and made things difficult. Suddenly, we had a real burning desire to put government in its place. Government has no business interfering in the work of the church. Many of those issues were revealed during the last pandemic. The question is, what is the church's work? Is the church's work simply when we gather together to worship? Or is the church's work everything that we believe, teach, and confess? The very lives that we are called to live in the world. Well, we can't work through all these things the next few minutes. We'd probably spend about two, three hours, and I'd want to have a little bit of dialogue. But we are going to address, from a certain perspective, some of the really big issues that have arisen. And we're going to start with Reformation history, going back to 15, 24, and 25 in what was called the Peasants' Revolt. Now, at that time, in many German lands, many people rose up in revolt against their rulers. And the aristocracy pushed back. They didn't take it lying down. And in the end, more than a million workers revolted against their feudal lords. And the feudal lords pushed back hard. The estimates are that between 100,000 and 300,000 peasants were killed in the ensuing battles. Thomas Munzer, who was a radical Protestant pastor in one town in Germany, supported the revolt. Luther, famously, did not. 
Actually, Luther responded to the peasants fighting in typical Luther style by penning a piece that he entitled against the murderous, thieving hordes of peasants. Well, Luther, tell us how you really feel. And in that pamphlet, that essay, he wrote this. The peasants have taken upon themselves the burden of three terrible sins against God and man. And by this, they have merited death in body and soul. They have sworn to be true and faithful, submissive and obedient to their rulers. And now deliberately and violently breaking this oath, they are starting a rebellion and are violently robbing and plundering monasteries and castles, which are not theirs. They have doubly deserved death in body and soul as much as highwaymen and murderers. And they cloak this terrible and horrible sin with the gospel. Thus, they become the worst blasphemers of God and slanderers of his holy name. Basically, Luther accuses them of breaking the second commandment, the fourth commandment, and a bunch of others as well. Now, in a later letter to a man by the name of Casper Mueller, entitled An Open Letter on the Harsh Book Against the Peasants, Luther also criticized the authorities for being too severe and playing a role in having caused this rebellion. But it would seem like Luther upheld a pretty clear, obvious reading of Romans 13. The government should not be rebelled against even when they impose harsh conditions on the people. Flash forward a few years, a couple of decades, to just after the death of Luther, when there was hope on the part of the Holy Roman Emperor charged with governing Germany, ultimately, that maybe all of these Lutheran renegades would return to the fold. Charles V fought against and defeated a group of Protestant German territories in what was known as the Small Called War. And then in 1548, the emperor issued a decree known as the Augsburg Interim, which allowed priests in Lutheran territories to marry and for communion to be distributed in both kinds. You could have both the blood and the body of Christ. But pastors had to reject the teaching that people were saved solely by faith in Christ's gracious, redeeming work. Most of the territories of Germany capitulated. This is, after all, the emperor. He did, after all, win the war. We are supposed to be subject to the governing authorities, and we know what Luther wrote about the peasants. So we're going to do what the emperor says. But one city refused to concede, and that was the city of Magdeburg. And because they refused to concede, they were besieged for over a year, cut off from all supplies. Well, what did they think of Romans 13? Did they just decide that Paul was being crazy, that they didn't have to submit to the governing authorities, that that wasn't an obligation that was laid on them? Well, they were good Lutherans. They took the scriptures seriously. They believed it was the word of God, and so they thought hard about what they were going to do. And they pointed out something that hadn't been really thought about before up till this point. Romans 13 says, be subject to the authorities. Well, the authorities are usually more than one person. Yes, there was an emperor, but beneath the emperor, there were prince electors, and beneath them, there were the rulers of the cities and towns. Weren't all of them authorities instituted by God? 
And if they conflicted with each other, which one do you obey? If one authority is abusing its godly power by proposing things that are contrary to God's will, you shall not preach the gospel. Can't a lesser governing authority interpose themselves between their subjects and the emperor and protect them? And in so doing, aren't they also doing God's will? The argument was used by Lutherans in the United States back in 1776 when the Continental Congress declared independence from the king. The argument was made that they were simply doing the same thing that the rulers of Magdeburg were doing, interposing themselves between their subjects and the king, a middle authority that people could justly obey and still retain the meaning of Romans 13. It was therefore a legal rebellion of sorts. We might apply the same rule if something similar were to happen in Quebec, except potentially in reverse. What happens if the Quebec government decides to close all churches and separate from Canada, and the Canadian government intervenes, miraculously, to actually enforce the Charter of Rights and Freedoms? Which level of government do we obey? Well, this is where Acts 5 and Romans 13, 8 through 10 can help us understand what to do. Acts chapter 5 still stands in scripture where Peter says we must obey God rather than men. But the question then is, which men do we obey if we're going to keep Romans 13, which is also God's word? Which authority do we follow if one rises up against another? I argue that Romans 13, 8 through 10, the ending of our epistle, provides the instruction. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. By the way, there's a definition of love for you. Somebody who's abusing a friend or a family member said, I'm doing it out of love. Abuse is not love. It does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So in a moment where you've got conflicting rules, conflicting authorities, or the government is asking you to do something and you're not sure what exactly you should do, would you obey them or not? Ask yourself this question. Is what the government doing being done out of concern, even potentially a misguided concern for your neighbor? If yes, defer to their authority. And if not, get together with other Christians and work it through. So here's one illustration of how our church body has handled this in the past. Back in 1918, there was a flu epidemic that swept around the world, the Spanish flu, which killed people everywhere by hundreds of thousands, if not millions. One city, Philadelphia, was hit especially hard. One of the reasons Philadelphia was hit especially hard is because Philadelphia had a history of ignoring pandemics. 
we're going to die, we're going to die, and that's the way it's going to be. And so the bodies simply accumulated out there in the streets. Nothing was done to slow the disease's spread. Across the country, in St. Louis, authorities took a very different tact. They even went so far, with the blessing of religious leaders, including the leaders of the LCMS, to halt Sunday services so that there would be no gatherings in which the virus could spread from one person to another. So I quote from the Lutheran Witness of 1918. J.H.C. Fritz, chairman of the St. Louis Pastoral Conference and later professor at Concordia Seminary, noted that it was, quote, customary among Lutherans to have family worship. And he recommended that, quote, the lessons for the day be read from the Bible in lieu of the church service. In other places, government directives extended these over several Sundays. What could be done in a world with no opportunity for live streaming or video delivery of sermons are modern Lutheran Witness reports. Well, in Knoxville, Tennessee, the Reverend K. Kretschmar encouraged his flock to have family devotions so that Sundays, he wrote, though church less, might be, quote, God full. It might not surprise you to know that the impact of the flu on the city of St. Louis was orders of magnitude less than it was on Philadelphia. No one there thought the government was trying to shut down churches by its actions and calling for an end to gatherings, including temporarily church gatherings. They were slowing the spread of a virus. They were seeking to love their neighbor. And therefore, our Lutheran churches concluded that they could support their actions. We at Ascension have applied Luther Romans 13, 8 through 10 over the last few years as well. As the novel coronavirus was spreading and our government sought ways to slow the virus's spread based on what they knew at the time, we followed their guidelines. Why? Were we afraid that the government hated churches? Hardly. They closed casinos and bars and taverns and restaurants, thus losing millions of dollars of tax revenue. Everybody got hit by the same hammer, if you want to think about it that way. But governments took the stand they did to show love to their neighbor. We live under an intentionally secular government in Quebec. There is no question that issues are going to arise as to how to live as Christians under this less Christian, more secular government. But there are two things we should take away from Romans 13. Number one, authorities are put in place by God to restrain evil and promote good, and we are to be subject to them. And number two, we ought to love our neighbor and do them no harm. When both line up, we know we are doing God's will. When they don't line up, that is when we need to gather together in prayer and consider how to obey God rather than men. Christ himself was subject to the authorities. It was his very being subject to the authorities that saved us. Jesus could have rebelled against Pilate and said, you're crazy. I am the son of God. I'm not going to submit to crucifixion. And yet he did. He could have pulled rank on all the religious authorities and said, I am an authority that trumps you all. But he did not. And we were thereby saved. The truth of the matter is Peter and John and Paul also submitted themselves to the authorities. But they also loved their neighbor. 
And when that meant they had to preach the gospel, when that meant they had to share what God had done for people in Christ, even though the government told them to stop, shut up, do not preach this gospel anymore. In that moment, they said, we must obey God rather than men. I might argue that the same way in Christian history, when governments told people not to care for unborn children or born children by leaving them out and exposing them on street corners, it was Christians that went ahead and did it anyway, out of love for their neighbor. And so God calls upon us out of love for those for whom Christ died, both us and our neighbor, to do what Christ did, which is to love our neighbor by submitting to the authorities, and to do both at the same time. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.